production. Hello, it's Sarah. I wanted to let you know about my three new meditations I have made especially for you. If you follow the podcast, you'll know that meditation has been a big part of my life for a long time, so a lot of care has been taken in making these meditations extremely powerful. I've created a 20-minute manifestation meditation to allow you to bring your dreams into reality. Then I've created two 10-minute meditations, one for the morning to help you start your day vitalized and with a clear mind, then an evening meditation to help you have a calm and restful sleep. You can find these three meditations on my website at the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com. Melanie C, best known as Sporty Spice from the pop group The Spice Girls, is one of the biggest artists from the 90s. Okay, we've got one final award this evening and it is the most important award. The Spice Girls! The Spice Girls have sold over 100 million records worldwide, making them the best-selling female group of all time and one of the best-selling pop groups of all time. But things haven't always been easy for Mel. A broken girl from a broken family with an overwhelming desire to succeed who, against all odds, achieved extraordinary things. This conversation is about the many highs associated with these achievements, but the lows too. It's a discussion about love and loss, battling an eating disorder, the darkness of depression and how to understand and accept yourself through the many twists and turns of life. I had this really negative internal dialogue and I think a lot of women do. This constant berating of ourselves and I have spoken to myself in the past in a way I would never speak to another person. Even a person I don't know that well, I would never be so cruel and hateful, you know. And it's a real discipline to learn how to not allow that voice to creep in or get too loud. Being kind to ourselves on the outside as well as the inside is the only way we can truly be happy and fulfill our place on this planet. I'm Sarah Grimberg and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. Melanie Chisholm is the author of her memoir, Who I Am, My Story. This conversation with Melanie is raw and honest And in its essence, it's about how we can be surrounded by people, yet feel totally alone. We can be rich in material wealth, but poor in emotional wellness. We can achieve everything we've ever wanted, but be without anything we really need. My hope is that this conversation helps you to build a life of greater joy, enhance personal fulfilment and focus. Mel C, what a life you have had. In your new book, Who I Am, which is, as I just mentioned to you, so unbelievably moving and fascinating, you take us through the journey of your life thus far. I like to start all my interviews at the beginning, and yours ironically starts off with the Jubilee in 1977 and how it was such a happy time for you when you were three and a half. Yeah, I, you know, it's, it's such a strange time in the UK at the moment. And of course, you know, the, the Queen is very much in, in all of yes. our time. And one of my very first memories as a child was the Silver Jubilee in 1977. And then speaking to my mum, one of her very first memories is the Queen's coronation. Um, so of course, you know, she has just had these little pinpoints in, in all of our history. And um, at that time, I was living at home with my mum and dad who not long after that separated and went on to divorce. I moved away, you know, had a different home, a different area, and things really, really changed. And who knows how my life would have turned out, the person I would have become if those changes hadn't ever occurred. Yes. Were you deeply saddened by the Queen's passing? I know here in Australia, I know personally, I was so sad. And it's a funny thing, isn't it? Because she's 96 and you know, that is a good innings to live till 96. But it's this thing where you don't know life 
without the Queen, and especially at our age. I mean, you'd have to be pretty old to know life without the Queen. So I wonder how that's affected you. You know, it's it has been very strange, very surreal. You know, of course, we are, you know, we're constantly talking about all of the incredible things she did and how long she reigned and the sadness that's around it. You know, I've been so lucky in my career with the Spice Girls. We we were able to to meet her and, of course, you know, we, we have a relationship with Charles and the princes. So it's, you know, it's it's not only our queen, I think, as, as British people and, you know, probably as people around the world, we, we feel sad for her children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. It's like all of us, we know what that loss yes, feels absolutely. like. absolutely. And going back to your life, you just mentioned that your parents divorced and you went then to live with your mother to basically what we call commission flats here, which is government housing. And you talk about when you were four and you walked yourself to school and what, I mean, that made me laugh because I have a child that's nine and seven and there's no way, I don't even let my nine-year-old walk to the bus stop by himself, but you say kidnappers <laughs> were not invented yet. <laughs> I know, it's so funny, isn't it? One of the things I say that really drives my daughter mad, my daughter's 13, but when I say it was a different time, um, but you know, it was, it was a completely different time and the school was very close. And it was very much in view of, of where we lived. But yeah, the thought of that now, I, I think there's a term called yes. helicopter parenting, yeah. isn't there? And um, yeah, I, I think sometimes maybe we're, we're a little too precious about our, our little kids. But um, but yeah, gosh, it's it's crazy, isn't it? It's crazy to think I even knew which way to go. <laughs> I mean, my children... They wouldn't even remember their school bag if I wasn't giving it to them. And I wonder, <laughs> I wonder though, I mean, four is so young, but it makes you resilient. And what do you think by living like that in reflection, what did you learn? I think, you know, with the life that I had growing up as a child, it, it made me very yes. independent. You know, my mum is also a singer and she would often be away working and yeah, I, I feel like I, I had to be independent. And I, I feel grateful for that. You know, all of those things that happen to you as a child, they completely mould you, don't they? Um, you know, for good and for bad in certain aspects. But um, and I understand, you know, I understand so much more now as an adult and as a parent. I think you have a whole new perspective on how tough it can be trying to to do all the things to work and, and to parent and to make ends meet, you know, because my mum, obviously, it was a very different environment to the one that my daughter grows up in. I wonder at four, five, six, were you ever scared when you were walking to school or walking home from school or was it lonely? Um, I, you know, I didn't really have those feelings at that time. There's something I talk about in the book where mum was away working yes. And I was left with um, a babysitter, but she was pretty irresponsible. I went home, there was nobody there. And and I, I mean, I, I do remember that moment quite vividly, you know, on these concrete stairs that led up to the, to the flats where we lived. And moments like that were difficult. But again, you know, being a child, it's it's just the part of your existence that you just accept. It's just there. Um, you know, that only happened once. And as soon as my mum realised that, you know, this person wasn't taking mm. the care of me that they should, it, the situation yeah, changed. Yeah, that was, that was quite a heartbreaking story. And you mentioned in the book when that girl did take care of you. And you say she was a child herself. Mm. And I know that you're so close with a lot of your family members and you speak so beautifully about them in the book. But I wonder, because that obviously was such a tough time for you, was there any resentment that you harboured towards your mum? Never. I've never felt that way. Um, I think I probably internalised it all. Yes. To myself, you know, and that's kind of been a, a part of my character building. I have spent a long time dealing with whether it be wanting to fit in, wanting to feel like I belonged somewhere, being a people pleaser. These are all the things I've had to acknowledge. And it's been interesting writing the book because it's given me an opportunity to kind of piece a few things together and have a better understanding mm. of myself. Your parents obviously loved you a lot 
and you have such a beautiful relationship with your dad and you speak so beautifully about him. But there was a stage where they both found other partners and then they started having children, some of whom became your closest friends. It wasn't obviously easy for you at that time and you were young and you wondered, would it have been easier for everyone if you weren't there? Yeah, and I think probably, you know, lots of children who are in the situation I found myself in, and you have to remember this was the 70s and the 80s and it was so different then. Now, sadly, lots of people break up and, you know, that I'm not with my child's father and a lot of her friends are in a similar position. But when I was a kid, I was the only one. All of my friends, their parents were together. They, For me, you know, from the outside, it looked like there was all these perfect, happy families and I was this odd one out and I really just didn't understand my place in the world. Um, but I'm sure there are many people who will read the book who can identify with those feelings. It's a funny thing, you know, Mel, because divorce, we look at it and we go, oh, it happens so often. What is it, like 50% of couples get divorced? The thing is... The amount of people I've interviewed who are adults now who still say that was one of the worst moments of my life. And I think it's so underrated the effect that that has on people. But even as adults, if your parents get divorced as adults, that can affect you so much as well. And Mm. it's great that you talk about it in the book because I think it's something that we feel shouldn't be a big deal, but it actually is. Yeah, I think, you know, potentially because it does happen so much more now, it's it, people expect to not be affected by it. Oh, it's one of those things. It happens all the time. Um, but it does. Kind of, it kind of rocks your world because I think, you know, when you're a child and you're vulnerable and if you're lucky enough to have both parents there and, and that dynamic shifts and changes, I think especially when other step-parents come into it and half-siblings, it changes everything because that's yes, your security, it is. isn't it? It's your security. Your home, you hope, is, is the security, yeah. And after many years of dancing, you got a taste for singing and you realised that you were good at it and we'll fast forward a lot of steps and basically you auditioned for a girl band and after the first audition you got struck with tonsillitis and this Mm -hmm. was such a funny moment. I'm a true believer that everything happens for a reason and there's a greater plan at play and basically you couldn't go to the second audition, got a call for the second audition, you couldn't go, you had terrible tonsillitis and then... That was basically it, this girl band that you thought you were going to be in. Well, sorry, we'll put someone else in that place. But lo and behold, (laughs) she doesn't work out and you get a call. Can you take us through that? And now knowing everything you do, how you look upon that time and can you even believe that you got that second call? I was so determined for this to be the thing. I kind of felt like instinctively this was the one. I got a flyer. I was in a dance studio auditioning for something else. When I got the flyer for the audition for the band and, you know, I was like, this is it. This is exactly what I've been waiting for. This is my destiny. And then, of course, it didn't go according to plan. I, I did the audition. I got the recall, but then I was really sick. So I couldn't make it. And, you know, all the, the places in the band were taken. So to get that call two weeks later, it was like, I knew it. I knew to trust my instinct. I knew there was something in it. But, you know, even then it was still all a bit wobbly and shaky because I arrived, I met four girls, three of which you will know, (laughs) and one girl called Michelle who didn't end up being part of the Spice Girls. And then it was like, am I in the band? Is like, what's the sketch? What's going on? So it was all kind of weird, but it does feel like it was meant to be. And I think... So many things with the Spice Girls, if the stars weren't in alignment, even now, you know, when we, we finally get ourselves together, we get back on stage, it's so hard to get mm. to that point. It's like there's something has to shift universally to just make it happen. Isn't that incredible? What did you think of the girls when you first met them? It's funny because, you know, I think about... I I can really in my head I have these vivid images of the first time I've seen each of them and my thoughts and feelings about them and you know what it's like first impressions I was pretty spot on they're they're still the same like Jerry was so kooky and she had these like 
bunches like high up on her head and she had this pink fluffy jumper on and, and she was kind of all wide-eyed and a million miles a minute talking you know Melanie was really cool really laid back and I was like oh my god she's like the coolest person I've ever met and then Victoria was very droll very dry very funny and um yeah I mean the girls are exactly how they were the first time I met them even though obviously our lives have changed so much and um yeah, when we get back together, we just like fall back into those roles way back to the early 90s. It's incredible, though, that you got to actually be who you were. You know, you talk about you then donning the tracksuits and all that kind of stuff, and everyone took on the role of their personality. Because I find in a lot of those bands that they're just told to be a certain way, and then that's how they have to go. And it must be so hard thinking about that now. If that's not really you, but there's some sort of manager that's going to give you a break or a record label or something, and they're telling you to act like something you're not, I mean, how hard would that be? The fact that you girls just were who you were, I reckon that's probably half of the success of your popularity. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, working in music and entertainment as long as I have, I've learned that being genuine is the only way one to sleep at night yes. you know and two to really connect with people yeah we we were so lucky you know and and even that you know wasn't without its issues because we had these personas we were given these nicknames by a magazine you know it was a little bit of fun but it really took off and then and we loved it you know we played up to it we became caricatures but this, you're bombarded with so much from the media and of course now it will be even social media that it can become confusing as a young person to figure out who you are you know within that um but no definitely I I think the hardest thing looking back to those times you know there was predominantly boy bands were you know the boys weren't allowed to openly have relationships or to be open and honest about their sexuality and I think that's really damaging to to people to not be not be true to who you are I think we've we've learned that and as our culture evolves and grows thank goodness you know we come so much more accepting of everybody being different and individuals absolutely and then why do they make you go live in a house together <laughs> I think that was really to bond you know I mean it's so funny isn't it it was almost like Frankenstein's <laughs> monster they put us together they were kind of they were looking after us you know financially in the most basic of ways but yeah we were there we were working together every day we were rehearsing we were formulating plans and then yeah and then we upped and left and we got what we wanted from uh, the men that had put us together and then we went off and created what we wanted to do so yeah they were um, they were foolish they underestimated us <laughs> I know that's very true and you talk about some of the funny stories that you had living together in the early years of the band and you talk about Mel B weighing into a bottle which I mean look when I read that I was like oh my god of course though out of any of the people to do that in the band that just seems something Mm -hmm. that Mel would do and this was the thing that I love the most and it shows how young and you're new to the scene there's a story, I'll let you tell it, about when you called oh. Seal. <laughs> well, you know, this is the thing with the Spice Girls. We, we are, we were and are ridiculous and, um, yeah, and, and so silly. And we just really egg each other on to do silly things. And we were auditioning potential managers, which is, you know, the way we always approach things. <laughs> um, you know, even though we had zero experience and we're so new to the game, but we one particular manager we saw he had seal's number so of course we had to get that down and we gave him a call went to a voicemail and we all started barking like seals and we just thought that was hilarious i mean literally you know i know my daughter's gone through that thing of like doing hoax calling i think all kids go through that phase don't they but we were way too old <laughs> you know we were like okay emma was in her late teens we were in our very early 20s and it's like you know what, girls, a little bit too old to be playing these games. But when you're doing it to somebody in the public eye, you know, it, it seemed 
very funny to us. Um, but Seal was very gracious about it. When we eventually met him, he was very forgiving. <laughs> that is hilarious. And I love this other thing about how Simon Cowell, and this is way before the Idol or X Factor days, he said, it's a no from me. <laughs> when you are looking to join a label. We were going around labels and it's really fun because the wannabe video is is really based upon how we went around the music industry. You know, we were rolling up to, I mean, sometimes we were literally rolling up, you know, me and Melby might have been on rollerblades, falling all over the place, but we'd go into record companies and publishing companies and we'd jump around and we'd cause mayhem and just leave a trail of disaster where, wherever we'd been. And one of those places was RCA, I believe, where Sam and Cal was working at the time. And we did our little sing song to him, our boombox. And he was one of the only people in the industry to to say no thank you, which I know he's been very vocal about being one of his biggest regrets. You know, we, we just weren't right for each other. But um, yeah, at the time, nobody knew who he was. You know, unless you worked in the music industry, you wouldn't have known who Simon Carr was. But of course, he's gone on to, to be who he is today. And I love how he said it's a no from me, which is exactly the line that he, he now uses on all of his uh, <laughs> idol and X factors. We touched on divorce at the start of the conversation and we talked about its underrated impact. And you write in the book, the divorce continued to have an impact on my relationship through my teens and my 20s. And it wasn't the only thing that held me back from having a serious relationship. But I think it's why I've always resisted the idea of marriage. Do you still believe that to be true? Uh, yeah, I mean, I do to this point. You know, I, I feel like I really understand so much about myself. Like anyone, it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to change the patterns yeah. that, that we develop over time with our experiences. And, you know, I, I, I really question marriage. You know, I, I know there are people that meet their soulmate people who meet in school and live long, happy lives together. and But I just don't think that's for yes. everyone. You know, I, I think it's a wonderful thing, but I think it's rare. And, uh, you know, our culture has always held ma- marriage in such high esteem. And, you know, you just had the statistic there, like 50% of marriages end in divorce. And it's like, has it become a bit of an old-fashioned notion? Each to their own. But personally, for me, I just, I don't know. Maybe I haven't met the right person. Um, but it's just something that I can't, you know, I've had great long-term relationships. You know, I've been very happy in relationships in my life, but they have yes. all ended. Um, so what does that mean? You know, for me, I, I see that part of my life as, and every part of my life as a series of chapters. And yeah, it's quite fun to embark on a new one. We spoke about it four years old, you were walking yourself to school. I mean, you are such an independent person, far more than a lot of the other people that I've ever come into contact with. Do you wish to find love again? Is mm-hmm. that important to you? Because for some people, it's not that. It's not that important. I mean, you have a daughter. Being a parent, one of the hardest jobs in the world, but the most fulfilling, being a parent and being in love and being on stage for me, that's like the the holy yes. trinity. <laughs> you know, they are the most wonderful things that can happen in your life. Um, so I, w- I would love to, to be in a in a really, you know, in a great relationship. Um, that would be a lovely thing, but it's not really at the top yes. of my agenda right now. Um, yeah, my daughter's a teenager, so she needs my attention. And I love my work. And I think, you know, as well, when you've been in a relationship, sometimes you're your friendships suffer a little, Absolutely. you know, because your focus changes, doesn't it? So yeah, it's a really lovely time. I'm really enjoying that reconnection with a lot of my friends again. Yeah. I'll never forget. It was my second long-term relationship. I was in my 20s and I had just devoted all my time to my partner then. And when we broke up, I remember thinking to myself, oh my God, where have all my friends gone? I had to seriously rebuild my friendships as an early adult. And I remember then thinking, I am never letting these friends go again because it was horrible feeling like you had just put all your time into something that could change in an instant. Yeah. I I think, you know, it's 
it's so easy to do as well. And I think especially when there are kids involved, yes. you know, because you get into that whole family dynamic, yes. don't you? And I, yeah, your friends are so, so important. But I think we all go through these phases, mm. don't we? And we intertwine in and out of each other's lives. Um, but yeah, it, it is always fun to reconnect. And you know what? Your friends are actually always yes, there. Yes, they are. You know, it's, you know, the true friends, right? You know, the ones you can call yes. up after a couple of years and maybe not hanging out and it's just back to where you were. So, um, yeah, thank goodness for that. The Spice Girls started to take off and you're earning amazing, amazing money, all of you. And as we know, you came from an environment where you didn't have much money and you mentioned that you felt this overwhelming guilt for having the success that you did and no amount of cash could take away the sadness, the anxiety or the pain. Yeah, you know, it's, it's an interesting relationship with money and I think especially coming from an environment where it was tough and I did I felt a lot of guilt because I was doing the job I loved and I was it's hard to call my work work at times yes I'm going up on stage and fulfilling ambitions and dreams and often you can be paid very well for it and sometimes earning more money in a week or a day than some of my family members might earn in a year and that's hard to get your head around so, yeah, I've, I've had to kind of really work on that acceptance of that and the kind of how that I feel that's affected my relationships within my family. Um, I, you know, really, really young, I felt like I became the head of the family because yes. I was the person that could help everybody out. And that's, that's hard because it just like makes everybody feel a little bit uncomfortable and unsure of, of where they stand. So, yeah, it's something that's not talked about, I think. It's something that's not talked about enough. Because I think young people, if you find yourself in this successful position and all the pressures that come with that, um, yeah, it, it'd be good to have a little bit of, of support when it comes to that area. Things. I remember Oprah talking about when she came into having a lot of money as well and obviously didn't grow up with money. And then a lot of her family members, she was paying for a lot of things, of course, but it got to a stage where there were some people distant relations of her where she was like, I just can't do this anymore. They're not learning. They're not getting jobs. They're not helping themselves. I feel like I'm just dishing out money. Did you, and maybe it might not even be with family members, but did you ever feel that that happened with you, that people knew that you were earning a lot of money and took you for granted? Um, I think, you know, I've been lucky in the fact that I come from such a hard-working family. Being from the northwest of England, it's a very working-class area and it's kind of instilled in you yes. as a child. I'm a workaholic, you know. I never stop. And I think that's because that's what I saw my parents doing and my aunties and uncles and grandparents and nobody ever stopped working, mainly because they couldn't. They couldn't afford to. So, yeah, I don't think any, anybody around me has ever taken things for granted. But I think you do you do start to realise that actually your generosity can get to the point where it stops people helping mm. themselves. And it's just really trying to find that balance because you do, you yes. want to be generous, you want to help improve people's lives, but, you know, not to the point where it becomes detrimental. You mentioned that the night after the Brit Awards in 96 changed your life forever and a drunken moment that you could barely even remember with Victoria then led to Jerry and Mel B basically and your manager laying into you and you say, I started to consciously make myself smaller, fly under the radar, avoid detection. I thought if I don't speak, I won't get in trouble. If I don't get in trouble, I won't risk losing the thing that means the most to me, the band. Don't fight, don't argue, don't stand up or stand out. What seemed like a small event led to such such huge consequences. Yeah, you know, it's, it is. It's interesting. And I, I didn't really put the, the pieces of this little puzzle together until quite recently. But I remember that night... <laughs> albeit a little bit blurry because <laughs> we'd been at the Brit Awards and it was before we'd released anything. So although we were kind of known, there was whispers in the music industry, we weren't really known or in the public eye at that point. And I had a, a little altercation with Victoria 
which to me was nothing. But I was, yeah, I was really in in big trouble the next day and my place in the band was threatened because of my behavior and it completely freaked me out and I just from that moment on knew I had to be in control of myself and of my behavior and it was it was a bit of a catalyst towards where things went further down the line. For most people in the public eye you get a lot of immediate attention which you obviously still do now and that doesn't change. Britain's media as an Australian and looking at the US and Britain, Britain's media I find to be some of the harshest media around. You'd know more about that than I would, but even you see now with the Queen's death, things that they write, it's bizarre, as most media outlets are, but they are extremely harsh. What has been your relationship with the media? Oh yeah, it's been a, quite a few years now it's been going on but it's there's been quite a lot of, of court cases where it has come to light because we were so paranoid in the 90s you know we were told don't speak over the phone about things that are you know very personal or private and we were paranoid that our rooms were bugged and, and all kinds of stuff I mean we were literally we lived in fear of the media because and mainly because there were so many articles written where we just didn't know how they had yes. that information. You know, do we have a leak? And then we started to be paranoid about people around us, you know, whether it was family members or other members of the band or, you know, so we all became so secretive and so guarded. And then it comes to light that they were, in fact, hacking people's phones. Was this news of the world, the news of the world stuff from years ago? It was, was that the it same? Was, most of the yeah. tabloid media, so there was News of the World, yeah, there's some newspaper in the Murray newspaper. So yeah, that was that was an actual wow. thing. So even though we we thought we were, you know, going a little bit crazy um and being ultra paranoid, it was a real thing. Um and now I mean these court cases are ongoing. And when I've looked back over the articles that were written in the nineties and the noughties. It's shocking, you know, some of the personal information that was put in there. They actually got that information illegally um, and they're paying out damages for that now. And how do you look at the media now? Is there certain ways that you've learned to navigate it or how do you, for your own mental health? I know a lot of people in the spotlight, I remember Olivia Newton-John saying to me that she just stopped looking at reviews, she never read the media and that's the way, she said good praise and bad praise, both of them can do things to your head and I wonder for you how you navigate that. My number one rule is never read the comments. Yes, yes. (laughs) Because, you know, the article's one thing and then the comments are something else altogether. If I've done an interview, then I'll definitely want to read it because obviously your words can be twisted or misconstrued. So that's something I will always do. But yeah, I mean, you know, luckily I, I don't get written about a lot, a hell of a lot. You know, obviously if I'm promoting something, I'm out there and I'm doing my thing. And I've never really courted it. Quite early on, I realised I didn't like the media attention, but sometimes it's unavoidable. I think it's just developing a thick skin. The thing I had to get to terms with quite early on in my career is that you can't please everybody. I don't like everybody in the world and not everybody's going to like me. So you just have to accept that. Someone once said to me, someone's opinion of you is none of your business. And I just think that's a really good rule to live by. As long as you're happy and the people that you care about who are close to you, who really know you, as long as everything there is okay, then then we're good. But I think when it comes to your professional work, I'm the hardest person in the world to please. So if, if other people criticize my work, you know, as long as I like it, that's good enough for me. That's so true. And it's very good advice. Words are so important and they can pick us up and they can also bring us down. And there was a man called Chick who changed your life when he said whilst you were sunbaking, I'm surprised you can do backflips with thighs like that. Yeah, I think this is one of those moments where words can be cruel, but I think sometimes you don't realise how your words can affect people. And he said it in front of the other girls and it was really humiliating. And it made me question whether I was right. You know, I was, my, I was pursuing this dream of becoming a pop star, but now this guy is saying my thighs aren't 
right. You know, I've got these big thighs. And yeah, it, it completely shook me. And, and that was really the beginning of me having an unhealthy relationship with food and exercise. I danced all of my life. I'd been to performing arts college. I'd actually been really close to people with eating disorders, but it had never affected me. But I think it was just this, you know, this mix of trying to accomplish my absolute childhood dreams and being the right person and, and looking right for what I deemed to be the right aesthetic for that. That yeah, it just it just threw me into a bit of a tailspin, and that's when I you know started cutting down and and dieting probably for the first time in my life. Have you ever spoke to him about that since? No, I mean I I don't even know where he is. I haven't had any contact with him since we left in gosh way back probably ninety five. So um yeah never. It is such an interesting thing though because I think people the use of words is underrated. And the fact is, we all remember things like that. It was a passing comment from him, obviously. But at the same time, that affected your life forever. Mm-hmm. The same way as you can say something nice and that can have such an impact on someone's life. And I wonder now, even raising your daughter, how you speak to her about nutrition and food and all those things. Being a mum and having had an eating disorder it was very very important to me you know to to try the best I could to avoid my daughter having any of those thoughts or feelings and it's it's so difficult because we're bombarded with it you know we we live in this culture where we're obsessed with the way that we look and the one of the positives from the way things have changed is there's so much more body diversity and body positivity and the aesthetic is very different. In the 90s, it was very much about being slim. Yes. Skinny, even. It was the Kate Moss um, era, yeah. Yeah, but, but it's not like that anymore. Yeah, I'm so relieved things are different now. But, you know, we, we have different pressures to face. You know, there's so much cosmetic surgery yes. and so many young girls are having these procedures and these filters on Instagram and... Uh, there's this really often, you know, impossible aesthetic that young girls are trying to achieve. So, yeah, it's, I mean, it's just always navigating those things, isn't it? But I think we've learned so much about nutrition. We are so much more educated about what is good for us. So, um, but I, it, sometimes I think it's overkill as well. You know, there's all these yes, movements, there isn't is. there? Whatever, a diet is the best for you, whether it's go vegan, don't go vegan, you know, be, eat, eat meat, don't eat meat. Yes. It's like, what do we do? Um, but yeah, I, I think just to have a really open and, and balanced and, you know, sensible view of these. We know what's good yes. for us, right? There's no, there's no magic wands. We know the facts. <laughs> Having an eating disorder for so many years can have an effect on you. And I wonder now, do you get triggered by certain things? Um, I think for me, it's more, I've, I'm like hyper aware of myself. Yes. I do eat well, I, you know, I've really learned and, and especially through wanting to get the best out of my body in a performance way, whether it be sport or being on stage, that I have to feel that, especially as I get older, you know, I'm, I'm 48, you know, things are changing, the hormones are all over the shop and we have to acknowledge that. I still, I still try to work at the pace I did as a 25 year old, so I need to feel that. So yeah, I have a very, a very different relationship with food, but then I just have this like little voice in my head going, don't yes, be silly now, yes. you know, you need to eat more or you need to, you know, cut back on the booze or whatever that may be. Yeah. And I think that's always going to be with me now, just that little, mm. little guardian angel taking care of things. You're not shy to talk about your mental health, which is such an important thing. And the day after you did this big interview with Oprah, you said to yourself, You've just got to be a robot, no feelings, no excuses, no pain. You're a robot. And then you shut down. Can you take us through that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it was maybe a coping mechanism, you know. I'm sure it was. The the constraints I'd put on my life, eating a very restricted diet, I was training way too much, especially considering what I was eating and the schedule we were keeping with the band that I couldn't give in. I couldn't give in to tiredness. I couldn't give in to 
the procrastination, you know, I just had to do these things. And the only way I could do that was by removing any feeling or emotion. And that was the only way I felt like I could cope. You then go on to say that there was a point where it became all too much and you really became very depressed. What made you want to then seek help? How did you, in that state where you were going through so much, you were agoraphobic, you were having panic attacks, how were you able to then reach out for help? I think all of the the things I was experiencing, it was very much about yes. control. So whether it was control over my eating and my exercise, and that was safety to me because I had this control. Once I started to lose that control, I was binge eating. I had insomnia, I had anxiety. And, you know, some of these things I didn't have words for, but I've gone on to learn that that's what they were. I lost the control and that terrified me. And then I realised I couldn't do it on my own anymore, that I needed professional help. Thankfully, my body took over my mind and I had to reach out. And that was the first step towards getting better. Since then, what do you do now for your mental health? I do, well, there's a little toolkit yes. in the book. <laughs> I'd like to share with people how I do it. And it's all pretty obvious stuff. It's all stuff we know, but it's the things that work for me. But it's important. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And, it, you know, it's, and this is a buzzword, isn't it, of our time, yeah. self-care. You know, we need to look after ourselves, whether it be through nutrition, exercise, you know, the right forms of exercise, not going crazy, getting fresh air trying to get enough sleep, which can be hard as a parent, which can be hard at certain times in your life. So all of those things, drinking enough water, not drinking too much alcohol, just all of these things that go towards making us feel good. And, you know, being honest, I think for me, I had this really negative internal dialogue. And I think a lot of women do. I think a lot of people do. But my experience, obviously, is is being a woman. And we put ourselves down. We're never good enough. We're never funny enough. We're never pretty enough. We're never successful enough. You know, we're not enough good enough parents. We're not good enough partners. It's like this constant berating of ourselves. And I know personally, I, I have spoken to myself in the past in a way I would never speak to another person, even a person I don't know <laughs> that well. I would never be so so cruel and hateful, you know. And it's a real discipline to learn how to not allow that voice to creep in or get too loud. And I just think being kind to ourselves on the outside as well as the inside is the only way we can truly be happy and and fulfill our place on this planet. You know, your story is so interesting because obviously you're an icon for so many people and, and still are. And people would think, oh, she has it all. And especially at that time where you were very sick, It's so interesting how you just don't know what goes on behind closed doors and how at the time Mm -hmm. where you were so famous, you had so much money and so many people loved you, you'll never get everyone loving you, as you said, you weren't happy. And I think like this book is so important to show people that that stuff doesn't equate to happiness. Oh my gosh, absolutely. And then of course you have to deal with having all this stuff I'm feeling really bad and then you feel guilty about that and like you don't you don't have the right to be unhappy it's like I don't want to be unhappy and how can I and it's just this downward spiral and cycle that it's really hard to get out of and yeah you know I I want people to know that this book is so full of joy and happiness and and I want it to be entertaining because the Spice Girls, we achieved yes. incredible things. And there are so many great iconic moments that it's been fun mm. to relive and talk about what was going on behind the scenes. And that's, I don't want to take anything away from that. But people need to know that fame is, it's treacherous, it's hard. And there are things that you have to consider if you're a young person that wants to go yes. into the world of celebrity, you know, there, there is a downside to everything in life and you have to acknowledge that and you have to try to do things on your mm-hmm. own terms. You know, I love what I do. I would never change my career, the path that I have taken, but I'm so grateful that now I understand there are a lot about it that is very destructive And just if I can help anybody avoid those pitfalls, then I feel like it's been worth writing this book. And you know, Mel, what I loved is when you talk about at the end, the Spice Girls reunion, 
and you were so happy then and all of the Spice Girls seemed to be very happy and content then and you just love being on stage and had your groove and I have to ask, will you reunite again? And for the people of Australia, will you be coming to Australia? Well, I think, you know, you guys know out there, if it was down to me and Mel B, we'd be there tomorrow. (laughs) We are, you know, and all the girls, um, obviously, Victoria, we we have yet to get back on stage, but we're hoping at some point we can convince her to do it. But, um, you know, the four of us that performed together in 2019, we do want to do more shows. We do owe Australia. Um, If I was rooting the tour, that would be the starting point. We're fighting that corner, myself and Melby, and we are trying everything within our power to get that to happen. (laughs) Amazing, amazing. (laughs) What is the best advice that you have ever been given? You know, my mum said a long time ago to me, never do anything you don't feel comfortable doing. And I feel like in the world of entertainment, that's great advice. In life in general, that's great advice. There's been moments when... I haven't trusted my instincts and then I've regretted it. So really listen to that voice because you know what? The person who has all the answers is you. You truly do. So just trust yourself. Mm, That's great advice. What is the lesson that has taken you the longest to learn? Oh, wow. Probably that Mm. one, you know, really trusting myself and listening to to that voice. For many, many years, I always thought everybody else knew better than I did. And that's the biggest mistake because nobody knows what's best for you over you, you know? Especially maybe just now in everyday life or when you were going onto the stage as a Spice Girl, is there a favourite prayer or saying or anything like that that you have? (laughs) The thing that's in my mind is there's always lots of swearing. (laughs) (laughs) when us Spice Girls get together. But I think for me, such a huge part of what I've realised, what really drives me as a performer is connection, connection with people. That's why I love making music, why I love performing music. And that's the thing, that is really the, the biggest gift of being a performer and an entertainer. So that's what I will look forward to. It's always being open and being present and making sure that you make that connection with your audience. Yes. What's your greatest hope for society today? Oh, gosh. I mean, ah. To find a place, you know, of of true acceptance. Um, We fear what we don't know. We're getting better. I think, you know, the society we share in the UK, in Australia, we're very close, aren't we? I see us as cousins. You know, we're pretty much experiencing very similar things. And we're getting better. We are getting better at understanding certain things about life. There's so much greed and corruption and I'm sure in Australia it's the same as here in the UK we've had tough years and people are suffering and there needs to be some big changes I don't know how long the British people are going to put up with the cards that we're being dealt so um, I'm hoping for some change and some Mm. real equality to happen for people yeah are you in a place where you're happy now and how's your mental health Yeah, I I think things are pretty good. You know, I think because of the things I've suffered in the past, I I would feel arrogant to say I'm all better. I think life is a continual work in progress, but I truly do believe I I would never get myself into the place I did last time because I just didn't understand what was going on. I didn't understand what I was getting into. So I, I just do need to, I need to keep, keep check on things but um yeah I feel like I'm in a good place I'm very excited about the future and now I'm a mum you know being a mum is it's just been an incredible thing and it's not without its challenges and don't get me wrong she's 13 so it's interesting times but she's a light of my life and I'm just really enjoying watching her grow yeah if she wanted to do acting or singing would you foster that or knowing what you do, would you maybe steer her in another direction? Well, I I think luckily 
that's not where her passions lie. And I do feel very grateful. But if that changed, of course, I'd support her. I'll support her whatever she wants to do. She's incredible and formidable. And I just think whatever she sets her mind to, she's, yeah, she's going to give everybody hell (laughs) the way she does me. And are you still good friends with all the girls? Because it's such a funny thing being in a girl band and spending so much time together. I mean, you know, you're put together in a sense unnaturally, but then you guys obviously had your moments, but it seems that you're always really good mates and you're all good people. From what I can tell, that's what it seems like. And I wonder, is it still like that now? Absolutely. Do you know what? I think our relationships are probably in the best place they've ever been because we truly respect and appreciate each other. You know, we drive each other mad and that's never going to change. And, you know, that, that's part of the beauty. And I think what we went through together, it was so unique and we were so young that it's beyond friends and colleagues. It does feel more like a, a family member. So no matter what happens, you know, whatever goes on in our lives, we're always there for each other. That's beautiful. What is a life of greatness to you? A life of greatness. I think it's finally coming to that point where you can have full appreciation for who you are and what you have achieved. And sometimes that's not the big things. You know, it's not the big successes that people, other people deem to be the successes. It's the things you've managed to overcome and keep steering that ship at the hardest of times. And I think that's the thing for me. I'm so proud that I've got through all of this, the good bits and the bad bits. And I've, I'm still here to tell the tales. Mel, you say it yourself in your book, meeting incredible humans, I've learned one thing. We can be overwhelmed or inspired and impressed by our heroes, but royalty, dignitaries, campaigners, actors, pop stars, they're just people. And even though, Mel, you're just a person like all of us, your music, your fearlessness, your voice, sharing your story has inspired and made people smile and changed a lot of lives. So for that, Melanie Chisholm, I say thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Well, I'm very grateful. I've had the platform and the privilege to be able to do that. So thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind the scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg, Audio producers Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free.